Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to Tuesday, February the 20th. Only eight more days in this month, and then we're going to head into March. And I remember my dad years ago always looking forward to the 1st of March because he thought spring was on its way. So let's hope that's kind of a correct assessment because I'm sure ready for spring after some of this cold and nasty snowy weather and hope you are too. Speaking of the weather, we'll get into that in just a moment, but I'd like to let you know that this is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you today as always on Tuesdays from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in sunny and chilly Massachusetts here at Deer Crossing are our studios located. Now, taking a look at the weather, if you've uh, been up for a while, you probably know it's a bit sunny and cool outside. Today we're supposed to have a high of only 34 degrees, but with the sun, I think it's going to get a little bit warmer than that, and it's going to be mostly sunny all day. Tonight we're going to have a full moon, but with some clouds, and it's going to be an overnight low of 22 degrees. Now looking at Wednesday and 30, Thursday, we still have sunshine and not too bad at temperatures. 40 is about the average high for this time of year, and that's what we'll have on Thursday, and 37 tomorrow on Wednesday. The overnight lows on Wednesday and Thursday will be 29 and 32 degrees, respectively. Now, looking at Friday, we have a bit of bad weather coming in. Looks like uh, windy again with some rain, scattered rain at times, and it's going to be up to a high of 48 degrees. So the temperature is going to spike quite a bit on Friday, but we're going to have some rain showers, intermittent rain. Now, Saturday, we get back to sunshine and 38 degrees, pretty much near normal temperatures. Mostly sunny on Saturday with an overnight low of 19 now, looking at uh, water temperatures, how about in Cape Cod Bay? Still advise against swimming as it's only going to be 39 degrees in Cape Cod Bay today and 37 in Nantucket Sound. Kind of surprising difference in temperature there. Wave heights very low, 1 to 2 feet. Winds north, northwest, 9 to 12 knots in both places, basically. Temperatures throughout the Cape are very consistent, as they typically are. And uh, looking on the west side of the canal, Wareham is 36 and Buzzards Bay is 34. Coming across the bridge now into uh, the Sandwich area, we have 33 degrees there, 35 right now in Mashpee, 33 in Falmouth. And the same Hyannis moving out to the Cape, Dennis, 34-34 respectively. Chatham, Brewster, East Ham are all at 34 degrees. Truro is 32. And out at P-Town at Race Point, it's going to be a high of 32 degrees today as well. Moving out to the islands, out there on Martha's Vineyard, we have 35 degrees in Edgartown, 35 at Oak Bluffs, and sunny skies. Moving further out to Nantucket, Seconset has 32 degrees, and Nantucket Village has 34 degrees. So there you have it, folks, a look at not only today's weather, which is going to be pretty nice, a bit nippy, but high of 34 again, mostly sunny, 
as will tomorrow be. And not too bad until we get to Friday, as I said, when we've got a high of 48 degrees, which is nice. But we have some rain coming in on Friday, but then clears up again at the end of the week on Saturday. So there you have it, friends. Pretty much not too bad of a week weather-wise as we look to today and beyond. And now let's look to page one of today's Cape Cod Times and see what we have there in terms of articles of local or regional interest. Well, here on page one of Tuesday's the 20th of February, Cape Cod Times, we have basically three articles of local interest, and we'll begin with those. The first one uh, has a headline picture here entitled, Upgraded Maritime Dock Awaits New Training Ship. And there's a picture, and it says that crews work on installing rebar Thursday that will be covered with concrete to support bollards rated to hurricane strength as the tie-down spots for the new training ship at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy as upgrades to their pier continue. And here's the article. It's back to the future, at least temporarily, for Massachusetts Maritime Academy cadets as they prepare for this year's sea term. Every year, cadets go on a six-week training cruise to learn hands-on a variety of maritime skills on its training ship, the T.S. Kennedy. This year, it was hoped Mass Maritime cadets would be cruising on T.S. Patriot State 2, a new state-of-the-art training ship. Delivery of the $300 million vessel was delayed, however, because of the pandemic. It was to arrive last summer, then January, however, is now expected by the start of summer of this year. To accommodate the new ship, the dock area at Mass Maritime is undergoing a $15 million renovation. The sea term, which is January through February during the winter semester was also delayed and will be conducted during the spring semester because the academy flip-flopped the semesters this year to accommodate for the new ship. Even if the Patriot State 2 was delivered as scheduled in January, logistical preparations required to conduct a training voyage would not have been completed in time for a January cruise, so said Rear Admiral Francis MacDonald, the Academy president. The Academy will have one more sea term voyage on the Kennedy, which has served the Academy since the year 2003. The Kennedy is currently being used by the Texas A&M Maritime Academy and will arrive at Mass Maritime for the spring sea term cruise scheduled to begin on April 20th. The T.S. Kennedy was once a cargo ship. The Kennedy, originally a cargo ship for the Merchant Marine, was built in 1967, said Mass Maritime Captain Elizabeth Simmons, Vice President of External Affairs for the Academy. It was converted into a training ship, the T.S. Enterprise, for the Academy in the year 2003 after a $10 million renovation in the year 2009. It was renamed the T.S. Kennedy in honor of the late Senator Edward Kennedy. These used freighters and tankers were converted into training ships that carried 500 to 600 students and about 150 crew and faculty, McDonald said. Still, the Kennedy was a 30-year-old vessel. We were sailing on yesterday's technology, actually the day before yesterday's technology. 
The Kennedy is owned by the federal government, but is housed and maintained by Mass Maritime Academy, which also uses it for training purposes, as will be the case for the state Patriot II. In times of emergencies such as a hurricane, like Hurricane Karina, showed now out of the date how out of the date the ship and its technology actually was, said McDonald. So from steam powered to diesel electric, Mass Maritime updates its training. Technical training on the cruises involves standing watch, learning engineering by working in the engine room navigation, and overall ship maintenance, said Simmons. While it was still a valuable learning experience, it was done on a ship that is almost obsolete. For example, the Kennedy is a steam-powered vessel, so engine room work is done on steam-powered engines. Additionally, the ship was not specifically designed for training. The new ship is diesel-electric-powered and was built to support training needs, and emergency needs. Said McDonald, it's like going from a Fulton steamboat to a Tesla. The Patriot State 2 will be more efficient for training purposes. One example is that the ship has two bridges. With just one bridge, which is usually staffed by two or three people, ten people can be crammed in for training purposes. With the second bridge, as many as 20 people can be trained at once. There are a number of other modern technological features that are on all ships today, but that were missing from the Kennedy, such as a navigation simulator. Throughout the ship, we can maximize the ability to train and keep people engaged, said McDonald. This is the core of what we do. It's experiential education at its best. In addition, there is a helicopter landing port toward the stern of the ship. So the mass maritime dock innovations and renovations needed to accommodate the new ship. The Patriot State II is about the same size as the Kennedy, but a little shorter and a little wider. The new ship has a larger surface area, making it more susceptible to high winds. That is one reason why a major renovation of the dock needs to be done. The dock must be able to withstand up to the Category 1 hurricane winds, said Captain Alan Metcalf, Vice President of Operations, who oversees the dock renovations. Six new 14-by-22-foot fenders will be installed at the pier, along with new bollards. Those are the structures to which the ship is tied at the dock that can support up to 200 tons of weight. New pilings are being installed because the new ship is diesel-electric powered. A shoreside power system will be installed with a 2-megawatt line that will run under the ground some 15,000 feet to a transformer that can drop 25,000 volts to the new ship, which needs 6,600 volts to operate, said Met. Also, special construction on the dock is necessary to install a roll-on, roll-off ramp so that, in emergency situations, vehicles can be loaded onto the ship. Metcalf said he expects the project to be completed by late spring before the Patriot State 2 arrives in the summer. This project at Mass Maritime is only part of a larger effort by the federal government to to support maritime education. They recognize the need for well-trained civilian mariners for our economy and our national security, said McDonald. 
He noted that the $300 million that went to the building of the Patriot, Patriot State 2 ship is just part of the $1.5 billion allotment to build a fleet of five training vessels for the five maritime academies in the United States. SUNY Maritime Academy in New York has one of these new training vessels, and Mass Maritime will be the second to receive one. Maine Maritime Academy, California State University Maritime Academy, and Texas A&M Maritime are next in line to receive the new training ships. All right, friends, there you have it. An article about the new dock being renovated and, and constructed to house the new Patriot Ship 2, a very modern, ongoing vessel used for training of mass maritime students. All right, let's move on. Remaining on page one, this next article of three on page one that has a regional and local interest is entitled, The Cape Dedicated Sewer Project Fund Falls Short comes out of the Boston University State House program, and here is the article. The Cape Cod and Islands Water Protection Fund, established in 2018 to help communities pay for wastewater infrastructure and water quality projects, is facing a severe funding shortage as it struggles to keep up with the rising demand for subsidies. The number and cost of projects are exceeding what was ever predicted, said Aaron Perry, the Cape Cod Commission's deputy director. The fund awards 25% subsidies to eligible wastewater management and water quality projects in Cape Cod and island towns, according to the commission's website. Since the fund was created, Revenue has largely kept up with projections, but local commitment to projects and eligible project costs have exceeded expectations, according to a January 12 letter to the chairs of the legislature's Joint Committee on Environmental and Natural Resources and the Cape Cod and Islands Legislative Delegation from Christie Senatore, the executive director of the Cape Cod Commission. The 2023 proposals for clean water, state revolving fund loans listed by the State Department of Environmental Protection call for over $167 million in local projects, more than $100 million above the assumed project cost for the Cape and Islands Fund and the greatest amount that we had seen for Cape Cod in a single year, Senator wrote in the letter. The State Environmental Agency's draft 2024 list of projects proposed for the state's revolving loan fund program, known as Intended Use Plan Projects, includes over $248 million in CAPE projects, Senatora noted. The management board of the fund has voted to reduce the subsidy to 12%. In 2024, without any additional funding, Board Chair Kevin Galligan and Orleans Select Board member wrote in a June 30 letter to Governor Maura Healy. It could potentially be lower, depending on the final intended use plan, said Perry. In his letter, Galligan said an additional $5 million is needed in fiscal year 2024, and approximately $66 million in revenue spread over the following three fiscal years to allow the fund to support continuing the 25% subsidy through the end of this decade. So what's the source of money for the Cape Islands Water Protection Fund? 
Well, the fund's dedicated source of revenue is a 2.75% excise tax on short-term rentals in the 15-member communities. Perry said this will continue to be a source of revenue while the board's executive committee has devised a two-fold strategy to seek new revenue sources. In this decade, we're looking at roughly $2.5 billion worth of projects, said Mark Forrest, a member of the Barnesville County Board of Regional Commissioners and a Yarmouth Select Board member, when referring to the significant commitment of investment in wastewater. Yarmouth approved a $207 million project involving wastewater collection along Route 28 and a treatment plant last year, said Forrest. What I'm worried about is the loss of momentum on wastewater investment, he said, adding that promised funding has not yet materialized while construction costs continue to rise. Yarmouth has been prepared to move faster with its projects, but it's the state that's been holding us back. Forrest said. So what are possible solutions? Well, as a short-term solution, the fund managers have requested the Massachusetts Clean Water Trust to use funds from the federal bipartisan infrastructure law to provide an additional 9% subsidy to disadvantaged communities on the Cape in the years 2023 and 2020. Perry said this would require a vote by the Board of Trustees at the Massachusetts Clean Water Trust. The proposal has been put forward to them, and we have requested that they consider it, he said. The long-term strategy includes pursuing bond fund authorization for approximately $300 million, which could be included in one or more state legislative vehicles. There could be an opportunity to request a dedicated allocation through an environmental bond bill spread over years, which would replenish the fund, Galligan said in an interview. So what has the fund paid for so far? Well, since its inception, the fund has awarded approximately $140 million in subsidies to Cape Cod communities for their wastewater and water quality projects, said Galligan in his letter to Governor Healy. The 25% subsidy has spurred action in the communities and has garnered community support, said Perry. Without significant additional revenues to the fund, the management board will be forced to limit subsidies for critically needed wastewater and water quality projects on Cape Cod, said Senatory in the January 12th letter. So, Massachusetts Clean Water Trust responds. During a board meeting of the trustees on February 17th, the Massachusetts Clean Water Trust approved clean water loans and financing agreements of $38,169,258 and $3,610,054 to Yarmouth. It will underwrite a portion of Phase 1 Wastewater Management Plan approved at last year's annual town meeting, said Forrest. We've been working with the Cape since the inception of this fund and will continue to do so. We expect to have an updated future board meeting on ways we may be able to assist, so the Trust Executive Committee said. All right, a little bit of information there about funding and the committee to help various Cape Towns with subsidies for their wastewater and clean water projects. All right, let's move on, friends.
So, friends, before moving on to page three, the Cape and Islands page, let's take a brief look at the various lotteries in Massachusetts and nationally. First, looking at the Mega Millions. Both Mega Millions and Powerball are way up in their jackpots, Mega Millions being a jackpot currently of $493 million. That drawing will be held this evening at 11 p.m. The Powerball drawing will be held tomorrow at 11 o'clock, and that is up to $348 million. So if you're looking for a quick wealth, get your $2 tickets for each drawing. However, the numbers are stacked against us in terms of the odds. Speaking of the numbers, let's take a look at yesterday's numbers game here in Massachusetts for February the 19th. The midday numbers drawing were these, 2869. Midday numbers, 2869 for yesterday. All right, the evening numbers drawing were these numbers, 4994. 4994 for the evening numbers drawing. Mass cash again yesterday. Here were those five numbers: seven, thirteen, nineteen, twenty-one, and thirty. Again, mass cash yesterday: seven, thirteen, nineteen, twenty-one, and thirty. Now the big ones. Powerball was drawn yesterday. Here are those numbers: four, twenty-three, forty-five, fifty. 53 and 17 was the Powerball number. Again, those numbers for Powerball yesterday's February 19th drawing, 4, 23, 45, 50, 53, and a Powerball of 17. Now, jumping over to Mega Millions, that most recent drawing was held last Friday, the 16th of February, and here are those numbers that were drawn then. 19, 23, 39, 42, 67, and a Mega Ball of 18. Again, 19, 23, 39, 42, 67, and a Mega Ball of 18. Now, finally, the Mega Bucks drawing held yesterday were these numbers, 13, 25, 27, 30, 41, and 44. Again, Mega Bucks from yesterday, 13, 25, 27, 30, 41, 44. And one other one for those of you who play Lucky for Life, those who were drawn yesterday, and here they are, 7, 19, 31, 34, 47, and a Lucky for Life ball of 11. Again, Lucky for Life, 7, 19, 31, 34, 47, and a Lucky Life ball of 11. All right, there you have it, friends, a look at the various lottery games. And again, those Powerball and Mega Million number jackpots are way up there. So if you play, I wish you good luck, players. Well, friends, here on page three, we find a couple of articles relevant to the Cape. And it says here, the first one, Truro, two Truro house moves along Route 6 are planned with delays expected. And this article is written by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times staff. And here it is. The town of Truro plans to move two town-owned houses to a town-owned lot on South Highland Road this week. The homes 
will be used for transitional and seasonal housing for town employees. Plans do call for a home at 127 South Pamet, that's P-A-M-E-T, South Pamet Road to be moved in two stages starting at 6.45 a.m., that's tomorrow, Wednesday. The home is scheduled to be moved from South Pamet Road to the intersection of Route 6 and North Pamet Road, where it will be staged overnight. This portion of the move is scheduled to take about three hours. According to a release from the town, police and fire officials and town Department of Public Works staff will work to ensure limited delays and emergency access for our residents during this part of the move. Then on Thursday at 6.45 a.m. again, the home is scheduled to resume its journey to South Highland Road along Route 6. This portion of the move is also scheduled to take about three hours. According to the town, the Route segment, Route 6 segment will be an escorted rolling convoy headed north towards 25 South Highland Road. Once that home arrives at South Highland Road, another home, at 13 Walsh Way, is also expected to be moved to a South Highland Road. This is a shorter move of about a mile. According to the town, Route 6 will not be closed during the housing moves, but travelers should expect delays and utilize alternate routes as may be available. All right, those housing moves up in Truro. Plan for tomorrow at 645, that's Wednesday, and Thursday at 645, northerly bound. All right, moving on. <laughs> this next article says Hyannis businesses can get grants to freshen facades. This article is written by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times, staff with a dateline of Hyannis. And here is the article. Small businesses located with the Hyannis Within the Hyannis Transformative District Initiative District can apply the initiative. Let me start over. Small businesses located within the Hyannis Transformative Development Initiative District, there I have it, can apply for grant funds for facade improvements through the Hyannis Main Street Business Improvement District. Business owners on Main Street from Yarmouth Road to High School Road can use the money for new signs, windows, planters, painting, masonry, siding, doors, awnings, and or structural or design changes. The Improvement District's Executive Director, Elizabeth Wurfbane, called the program a best practice that's been suggested by consultants over the years. In 2024... Small Business Facade Improvement Grant Program provides grants up to $20,000 with at least 20% matching funds from the applicant, she said. The program's goal is to improve the appearance of commercial properties in downtown Hyannis. Since COVID, there's been a lot more emphasis on grants to help businesses recover, Wurfbain said Monday. This is a direct way of supporting small businesses. This is one we've been wanting to do for years. Last year, several Main Street businesses took advantage of the program, including Smith Family Popcorn, Port Cargo, Love Live Local, 
soft as a grape, and Chelsea swimwear, according to Worthbane. The grants ranged from $423 to $8,000 for brightly covered canopies, new windows and doors, and new color schemes. They made subtle but significant changes to Main Street, Worthbane said, lightening the changes to a basic makeover. The TDI district has been identified as an area of transformative development, an area of concern based on data and what our consultant tells us, Worthbane said. He said you need a robust year-to-year facade improvement program. The application deadline for small businesses is March 24. Projects must be consistent with Hyannis Main Street Waterfront Historic District Commission guidelines and must be completed by December 31st. Preference will be given to projects that can be completed by June 30th. Applications can be found on the Hyannis BID website. The 2023 Small Business Facade Program provided grants to 21 small businesses and more than $400,000 of investment in downtown Hyannis, according to a press release from Barnstable's Community and Economic Development Planner, Kyle Pedicini. All right, there you have it, kind of an interesting article relevant to grants available for businesses on Main Street in Hyannis to improve the facades of their businesses, but require a 20% investment by the business itself. All right, let's move on. We are now nearing the halfway point of today's broadcast, and typically, for those of you who follow us, you know this, this is when we most often look at the various obituaries. And today it appears that we only have one, and that is of an Ed Howard M. Mowry, M-O-W-R-Y, of Buzzards Bay. And here is the obituary. Howard Howie Mowry. 83, of Buzzards Bay, loving husband of Janet Mowry, passed away on February the 10th, 2024. Howard was born and lived in Burrowville, Rhode Island, most of his life. He worked in management at National Envelope in Worcester, Mass., and previously in Webster, Mass. He enjoyed farming, gardening, camping, and fishing, as well as spending time with family and friends. He enjoyed the company of his grandchildren and pets, as well as watching the many birds and wildlife inhabiting his surroundings. Howie spent many summers vacationing in Maine and moved to Buzzards Bay in 2006. In lieu of flowers, donations in Howard's memory may be made to the VNA of Cape Cod. All right, that was the very brief obituary of Howard M. Mowry, M-O-W-R-Y, of Buzzards Bay. Ah, now moving to the lighter side of the paper in the Ask Carolyn column, where people out there write in their concerns and seek Carolyn's advice. It's... Entitled today, Sedentary Girlfriends' Extra Weight Gain is Affecting Their Relationship. And here is the letter. Dear Carolyn, I have found myself tiptoeing around the issue of my girlfriend's weight gain. When we first met, she was at a healthy weight but was not living a healthy lifestyle. She still is just not very interested in establishing a fitness routine. That's okay and her choice, and I accept it. But the significant extra weight is starting to have an impact on me and how I view our relationship. For context, 
I'm very fit and enjoy exercise and all of its benefits. I've been struggling to find the proper words to let her know I love her and want to be with her only, but I'm concerned about her long-term health and how, frankly, her consistent weight gain tells me it's going to keep moving in that direction. I understand I'm being superficial, but it's important to me that she stop letting herself go. Bring on the firing squad. Signed, Tiptoeing. Here's Carolyn's response. Tiptoeing. No, no. No execution. Your mistake isn't superficiality. It's that you're confronting, or conflating rather, separate important issues. Her inactivity is the relationship problem. Her weight simply made that visible. You are active and enjoy exercise, as you said. Maybe it's time to recognize that's a core value for you, so partnering with someone sedentary is a bad idea. It's also important to recognize she is not letting herself go. She is simply being herself. Hmm. This is her lifestyle of choice, always was. The age effects notwithstanding. And for what it's worth, let herself go is so often used against women who don't conform to uh, aesthetic expectations. That's a good idea to shelve it entirely. Thanks. That's a little confusing to me. But then she goes on to say, certainly some partners who are mismatches in this regard do fine. They have to like that about each other, though, or at least not care about it relative to much bigger things that are well matched. You, alas, are wishing wishing hard, that she would be different. You don't have to make yourself stay with someone incompatible because you're afraid it will seem shallow to break up over exercise. You can love a person bunches for who she is and still recognize you're not a good lifestyle match long-term, which seems to be the case here. Do an honest reckoning with yourself. Decide whether you love her completely, as is or as will be, and or will forever be trying to change her. Then tell her the truth lovingly either way. I love you and want to be with you. Every pound of her or it bothers me that our lifestyles are so different and I don't see love as being enough. And one reader has a thought that they'd like to share. It says, my husband has always been pretty sedentary. He's also an introvert. I run and do sports and he doesn't. And we are happy 15 years and three kids later. His stay-at-homeness is perfect for me because he doesn't mind staying at home while I exercise, travel to sports, or just am gone all day at a marathon. So, do you like the idea that your hobbies are different or that she's not a shape that you prefer or something else? It doesn't seem as if anything has changed except her weight. She's just being who she is, and her weight really is her business, not yours. I'm not sure I agree with that. One more thing. If that's how you feel, then you're not doing her or yourself any favors by staying. Just don't blame her for being who she is or claim she deceived you when the only thing you thought has changed is her weight. Oh, that's very interesting, Column. You can form your own opinions on that if you were in such a situation, but a sedentary girlfriend versus an active guy and a girl who's put it on a lot of weight and seemingly will continue to do so. Stay or bolt? That's the question. All right, let's move on. Well, we're moving more now into the national news, and this is kind of an interesting article. Well, at least I think it will be. It says here, Capital One to buy Discover 
for $35 billion. The deal would combine two of the biggest U.S. lenders and credit card companies, and it's an Associated Press article, and here it is, with a dateline of New York City. Capital One Financial is buying Discover Financial Services for $35 billion in a deal that would bring together two of the nation's biggest lenders and credit card issuers. Discover Financial shareholders will receive Capital One shares valued at nearly $140, according to a news release issued by the companies on Monday. Discover shares closed Friday, trading at $110.49. Virginia-based Capital One was the 12th largest U.S. bank as of the third quarter of this year, with 471 plus billion dollars in total assets and $346 billion in deposits, according to the S&P Global Illinois-based Discover, was the 33rd biggest with a $143.4 billion asset and $104 billion in deposits. Both companies have benefited from Americans' increased use of credit cards. In the fourth quarter of 2023, Americans held $1.13 trillion on their credit cards, and aggregate housing debt balances increased by $212 billion, up 1.2%, according to the latest data from the New York Federal Reserve. At the same time, the two lenders have had to boost their reserves against the possibility of rising borrower defaults. After battling inflation for more than two years, many lower and middle income Americans have run through their savings and are increasingly running up their credit card balances as well as taking on personal loans. The additional reserves have weighed on both banks' profits. Last year, Capital One's net income available to common shareholders slumped 35 percent versus 2022 as its provisions for loan losses soared 78 percent to 10.4 billion. Discover's full-year profit sank 33.6% versus its 22 results, and its provisions for credit losses more than doubled to $6.02 billion. Discover's customers are carrying $102 billion in balances on their credit cards, which is up 13% from a year prior. Meanwhile, the charge-off rates and the 30-day delinquency rates have continued to climb. All right, kind of a lot of technical dollars and cents references there, but the big information there, Capital One is buying Discover for $35 billion. And here's an article that might be of interest to you. It references seniors, and since we have a lot of seniors here on Cape Cod, you might find it interesting. It says, the study finds seniors enjoy virtual reality. The potential for help with emotional well-being is promising. Articles by Terry Spencer of the Associated Press with a dateline of Pompano Beach, Florida. And here's the article. Retired Army Colonel Farrell Patrick taught computer science at West Point during the 1970s and then at two private universities through the 1990s, so he's not surprised by the progress technology has made over the decades. But when the 91-year-old got his first virtual reality experience recently, 
He was stunned. Sitting in a conference room at John Knox Village, which is a suburban Fort Lauderdale, Florida retirement community, Patrick sat up straight as his eyes and ears experienced what it would be to be in a Navy jet fighter jet flying off the Florida coast. Oh, my God, that's beautiful, he blurted before the VR, virtual reality program, brought the jet in for a landing on an aircraft carrier. John Knox Village was one of 17 senior communities around the country that participated in a recently published Stanford University study that found that large majorities of 245 participants between 65 and 103 years of age enjoyed virtual reality, improving both their emotions and their interactions with staff. The study is part of a larger effort to adapt virtual reality, so it can be beneficial to seniors' health and emotional well-being, and to help lessen the impact dementia has on some of them. During this testing, seniors picked from seven minute virtual experiences, such as parachuting, riding in a tank, watching staged performances, playing with puppies and kittens, or visiting places like Paris or Egypt. The participants wore headsets that gave them 360-degree views and sounds, making it seem like they had been all but dropped into the actual experience and locale. It brought back memories of my travels and brought back memories of my experiences growing up on a farm, said Terry Colley, a former public relations director at the Canadian Embassy in Washington. He said this of his 2022 experience. Collie, 76, liked swiveling in a chair to get a panoramic view. That was really kind of amazing, he said. And Selby, a 79-year-old retired counselor and artist, found virtual reality, quote, stimulated virtually every area of my brain and all of my senses, end quote. I particularly enjoyed the ones dealing with pets because I have a cat and I have had pets most of my life, she said. Stanford's peer-reviewed study, working with the company My End Immersive, that's M-Y-N-D, found that almost 80% of seniors reporting having a more positive attitude after their virtual reality session, and almost 60% said they felt less isolated socially. The enjoyment lessened somewhat for older respondents whose sight and hearing had deteriorated. Those who found virtual reality less enjoyable were also more likely to dislike technology in general. Almost 75% of caregivers said residents' moods improved after using VR, that's virtual reality. More than 80% of residents and almost 95% of caregivers said talking about their VR experience enhanced their relationships with one another. For the majority of our respondents, it was their first time using virtual reality. They really enjoyed it. They were likely to recommend it to others, and they looked forward to doing it again, said Ryan Moore, a Stanford doctoral candidate who helped lead the research project. We are proving VR to be a tool that really does help with the well-being of our elders, said Chris Brickler, Mayan's CEO and co-founder. The Texas-based company is one of a handful that specializes in virtual reality for seniors. It's a far different effort than a two-dimensional television or an iPad. 
Separate from the study, John Knox Village uses virtual reality in its unit to house the seniors who do have Alzheimer's disease and other dementia. It helps spur memories that lead to conversations with their caregivers. Said Hannah Salem, the facility's meaningful coordinator, they'll start laughing and saying, ooh, I'm going to catch those butterflies, Salem said. Catching butterflies is also part of a game Mayan developed that helps seniors enhance their mobility and flexibility as they stand and reach for objects they see in virtual reality. It's more fun for these seniors to come in and catch butterflies and work on shoulder rehab than it is to go pick up a weight, Brickler said. Brickler said his company's systems will soon attach to Google Earth so seniors can virtually visit neighborhoods where they lived, schools they attended, and places they have visited, further sparkling conversations with caregivers. The company has worked on the biggest complaints seniors in the study had about VR, that the headsets were too heavy. The heat they generated made their forehead sweat, and sometimes they experienced created nausea, he said. The new headsets weigh about six ounces instead of a pound. They have a new built-in fan for cooling, and the videos aren't as jumpy when they're watching them. The findings that seniors in their 80s and 90s enjoy VR less than those in their 70s might lead to changes for them, such as requiring less neck rotation to see all the scenery and making the visuals bigger, Moore said. On a recent afternoon at John Knox, a handful of seniors who live independently took turns again using virtual reality. Pete Audette experienced what it would be like in a wingsuit, soaring over snow-capped mountains before landing in a field. Ooh, running stop, exclaimed Audette, a 76-year-old retired information technology worker. He thinks other seniors will really enjoy it, but they just need to learn how to use it which is typical of any technology. His wife, Karen, played with puppies and was so entranced by her virtual walk around Paris that she didn't even hear questions being asked of her. I was there, but I was here, said Karen Audit, an 82-year-old retired elementary school teacher. Farrell, the retired Army computer expert, believes the cost of systems will drop dramatically and become part of everyday living, even for senior citizens. It's going to be very realistic and very responsive, he said. It will be probably connected somehow to your brain. All right, there you have an interesting study involving virtual reality as experienced by seniors and their reactions to it and how it may help them with their emotions and overall well-being. Very interesting indeed. Well, friends, if you've been following the news, you know that the state of California has really been hit hard by tremendous winter storms and wet weather. This article references that. It says, wet winter storm hits California once again. This has a dateline of San Francisco, and here's the article. Another wet winter storm swamped California with heavy rainfall on Monday, flooding the runways at a regional airport and leading to several rescues on swollen rivers and creeks. The Santa Barbara Airport, one of the state's central coast, closed Monday after much as 10 inches of rain had fallen in the area by noon, covering the runways with water. Commercial flights have been canceled, general aviation operations are paused, and the terminal is closed, airport officials said in a statement posted on social media. For information about specific flights, please contact your airline directly, said the message. The National Weather Service 
had warned that California's central coast was at risk of significant flooding, with up to five inches of rain predicted for many areas and isolated rain totals of 10 inches possible in the Santa Lucia and Santa Ynez mountain ranges as the storm headed toward greater Los Angeles. The storm is expected to move through quicker than the devastating atmospheric river that parked itself over Southern California earlier this month, turning roads into rivers and causing hundreds of landslides and killing at least nine people. Moderate showers were reported Monday afternoon, but more rain was expected to impact the state through the night and into today, Tuesday, forecasters said. The storm had already led to a number of rescues, including in San Luis Obispo County, where crews helped three people out of the rising Salinas River in the city of Pazo Robles. Firefighters were getting ready to train on swift water rescues when they received word that someone was stranded on an island in the river. Paso Robles Fire and Emergency Services Battalion Chief Scott Hallett told KSBTYTV. Farther to the north, firefighters rescued two people from the top of their vehicle, which had stalled in floodwaters. It's Slow House, a community about 20 miles southeast of Sacramento. Hours earlier, a man was rescued along a creek in El Dorado Hills, northeast of Sacramento. The man who had been camping in the area was trapped in a tree as floodwaters rose, El Dorado Hills Deputy Fire Chief Dave Brady told local KCRA-TV. Thunderstorms in valleys around the state capitol on Monday, that being Sacramento, could bring brief tornadoes, large amounts of small hail, heavy rain, lightning, and gusty winds, the Weather Service in Sacramento warned yesterday. Residents in the region, including Sacramento, Chica, Yuba City, Stockton, and Modesto, are advised to pay close attention to the weather. Kelly Curtis, a personal trainer in Long Beach, prepared by getting sandbags to protect her home where she has a training studio in the garage. I don't think it will be as bad as the last storm, but last time I got flooded and I kept the sandbags just in case, she said. Forecasters said the storm would be strong enough to cause problems, including flash flooding and power outages. Flood watches and warnings were issued in coastal and mountain areas up and down the entire state. Several feet of snow is possible at elevations above 6,800 feet across the Sierra Nevada, the Weather Service said. Motorists were urged to avoid mountain routes. Consider completing Sierra travel during the day Sunday or rescheduling to later next week, said the Weather Service. The office issued a back county avalanche watch for the Greater Lake Tahoe area and the Eastern Sierra in Inyo and Mono counties. The California Governor's Office of Emergency Services activated its operations center Saturday and positioned personnel and equipment in most areas of severe risk. So there you have it, friends, another look at the very severe storm conditions in the entire state of California. There's an interesting article. Not good news for people who may have taken a vacation to France and hope to visit the Eiffel Tower in that this article says strike closes the Eiffel Tower to visitors. Dateline Paris. Visitors to the Eiffel Tower were turned away Monday because of a strike over poor financial management at one of the world's most visited sites. A sign was posted at the entrance in English saying due to a strike, the Eiffel Tower is closed. We apologize. 
The hugely popular 1,083-foot landmark in central Paris has seen soaring visitor numbers in the lead-up to the Summer Olympics in the French capital. Tourists planning to visit the Eiffel Tower on Monday were warned of disruptions in multiple language on its website. Visitors were advised to check the website before heading to the monument or to postpone their trip. Electronic ticket owners were told to check their inboxes beforehand. The Landmarks operator also said on its website that visits to the Eiffel Tower will be disrupted on Tuesday. We're a little disappointed, but we understand that people deserve a fair wage and they deserve proper working conditions, said Marissa Solis, an American tourist visiting Paris from New York City. The Eiffel Tower is typically open 365 days a year. Monday's closure is the second in two months due to strikes. In December, it was closed to visitors for an entire day during Christmas and New Year's holidays because of a strike over contract negotiations. Morgan McKinney, an American living in Germany, has come to Paris to celebrate a birthday and decided to enter the landmark Monday after surveying it from all sides over the weekend. Knowing that I cannot come to the tower today is very, very disappointing, McKinney said. She added, I appreciate the workers wanting to keep the tower going for the next few hundred years. Stephanie Dew of the CGT Union, which represents a large number of the Eiffel Tower's employees, said Monday's strike is aimed at a salary increase in proportion to the incoming revenue from ticket sales and improved maintenance of the monument, which is owned by the Paris municipality. Union leaders have criticized the Eiffel Tower's operator's business model, saying it's based on an inflated estimate of future visitor numbers, maintenance cost expenses, and employees' work compensation. They're giving priority to short-term benefits over long-term conservation of the monument and the well-being of the company we are working for, Dew said in an interview with the Associated Press at the Eiffel Tower picket line on Monday. So hopefully... Those people that wanted to see it yesterday may be able to see it today or tomorrow. But anyhow, kind of off and on strike at the Eiffel Tower in Paris over wages. Well, for those of you following basketball, you may know that the NBA professional all-star game was held this last weekend and there was a lot of negativity surrounding that event and this article addresses that it says the all-star game needs fixing but answers won't be easy has a dateline this article does of indianapolis and here's the article the nba's all-star issues won't be solved at a media hospitality event on the fun side of the midnight hour but that didn't stop nba writers and nba social media chatter from tossing around ideas aimed at improving the fan experience and creating a better product for the league on saturday and sunday nights nba commissioner adam silver has a team of people doing the same, and his frustration at the players' competitive ambivalence in Sunday's All-Star game was apparent when he awarded the winning trophy to the East, saying, well, congratulations. The pause was a silent scream. Answers aren't easy, especially when it comes to the Saturday dunk contest and the Sunday game. In Indianapolis, Saturday and Sunday, a three-point shot contest salvaged the weekend. First Milwaukee Bucks guard Damian Lillard captured his second consecutive three-point contest and Golden State Warriors guard Steph Curry and New York Liberty guard Sabrina Ionescu delivered during a three-point contest. 
Daddy listened to excitement and a thought-provoking exercise in whom can do just what as well or better than someone else. But the dunk contest lagged and events stuck in neutral for a variety of reasons and the All-Star game didn't generate any competitive spirit at all that Silver had sought and that Basketball Hall of Famers Larry Bird and Charles Barkley tried to shame the players into providing. We're not necessarily looking for players to go out there as if it's the finals necessarily, but we do need players to play defense. We need them to care about this game, Silver told sports reporter Saturday, concluding with the thought, I think we're going to see a good game tomorrow night. That, of course, did not happen. Complaints and criticism are necessary not only to capture what happened, but to generate ideas and solutions that are paramount to reinvigorating the weekend. Stephen A. Smith, prominent sports reporter for ESPN, has suggested dropping the game entirely. The NBA has tinkered with All-Star Weekend. Some ideas have worked, some have not. And some ideas worked until they no longer did. So anyhow... Now, on to what's not working. Well, the dunk contest is stagnant but could be revived. The addition of G League and viral dunk sensation Mac McClung last year worked. Let's also acknowledge the players have stretched the boundary of human gravity to its limits. They've jumped over objects, both inanimate, which were cars, and animate people, and a 720-degree dunk is unrealistic. So the All-Star game is trickier. The league has tinkered, going with captains to pick teams instead of East versus West, and the league used a targeted score format to end the game. It provided blips of improvement, but nothing sustainable. The commissioner wants something more than what's been delivered the past two seasons, which has been an absolute embarrassment for the league, with no defense being played at all and players just going through the motion. So that's what the league will address. The NBA is not alone in this issue. The NFL, NHL, and Major League Baseball have tinkered with their all-star events as well. Away from what just happened in Indy, the NBA's basketball operations staff will begin searching for improvements. If Silver didn't already have staffers working on it on the flight home. So that was a pretty bad exhibition. I mean, worthless to watch, so said many of the pundits on television. All right, brief reference to the NBA All-Star Game, worthless as it may have been this past weekend. All right, friends, we've pretty much come to the close of today's reading of the Tuesday, February 20th edition of the Cape Cod Times. So until next Tuesday, this is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, letting you know that it's been a pleasure reading for you today, and I look forward to doing the same next Tuesday. So until then, enjoy your life, stay healthy, stay happy, and so long for now.